Now, I've got to tell you something before we open up chapter 8 tonight. If you have not already been confused about Melchizedek and some of the other stuff, tonight chapter 8 talks about um, shadows, um, pictures of the future, pictures of the future that you might not understand until the future. So it gets kind of deep. Uh, we'll make it... Uh, as light as possible, but it is an interesting chapter, chapter 8. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask you what I've asked you in every one of these services. Lord, you'd open our minds to understand the scriptures. For um, to know the word is to know the Son, and to know the Son is to know the Father. To know the Father is eternal life. So, Father, we ask that you would reveal your word to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8 moves from Melchizedek, the high priest, to the ultimate high priest. His name is Jesus. Everything about Melchizedek was to reveal the ultimate reality of Jesus. Jesus wasn't to reveal Melchizedek, no. Melchizedek was to reveal Jesus. And what makes that interesting is Melchizedek is before Abraham. So... It's so far back, 2,000 years before Christ, Melchizedek is a shadow of the Messiah, 2,000 years before the Messiah comes in flesh. 2,000 years. In fact, chapter 8 begins with the main point. Verse 1. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Now, here's how we're going to start chapter 8. Where's Jesus right now? He's not on the earth. His Holy Spirit is here, but Je Jesus, the 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 one who has nail prints in his hands. Where's he at? He sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly tabernacle, in the throne of God. God's on the throne. His son sits at his right hand. Now, I want you to notice something. Verse 2. There, or where? Beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven, there he ministers in a heavenly tabernacle now there were earthly tabernacles right and there was an earthly temple but there's a heavenly tabernacle the true place of worship so i want to tell you we're going to go tonight that everything that was in the old testament in the mosaic law in the tabernacle in the temple in the priesthood was a shadow of that which was coming to be revealed in christ a shadow. So there he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was not built by human hands. Well, who built the tabernacle in the, in the, uh, when they left Egypt? Human hands built that tabernacle. But there's one that's not built by man. It's built by God. That's where Jesus is at right now. Melchizedek was a history lesson. Jesus is an ever-present, here-and-now high priest of God. Jesus has taken his place of authority at God's right hand, not Melchizedek's place of authority. That's what I, not what I mean. Jesus took his own place of authority at God's right hand with all power, dominion, and authority. There is no one else in that role. He, he's what? He's the high priest. Singular. There's nobody else that can be the high priest. So if somebody says to you, and I touched on this last Wednesday night, if somebody says, well, you know what, all the religions of the world, they just go to the same God. No, they don't. It's impossible. There's only one high priest. There's only one high priest. And, and nothing in Buddhism will, will present a high priest before God. Nothing in Muhammad, in, in Islam, will present a high priest that can come before God. Nothing in, in Hinduism it's impossible. There is a high priest sitting at the right hand of the Father. He has all power and dominion and authority. He alone 
is our intercessor. Which means this. When you and I finally meet God, and we're going to one day, everybody's going to meet God. If he's not standing between us, if we're not standing with him, we will not be able to dwell in the presence of God. He alone is the high priest. The high priest is the go-between, God and man, man and God. He's in the middle. There today, he ministers on our behalf before God in a heavenly tabernacle. The tabernacle of our right now high priest was not built by human hands. It is the one, here's where we're going. It is the one that Moses saw on the mountain of God. Now we can't go on until you get this part. Hebrews is written, what, 1,500 years after the time of Moses. So, Hebrews, what we're reading, says that Jesus right now is in the heavenly tabernacle at the right hand of the God. He's the high priest. But there is another tabernacle in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament tabernacle, it didn't just pop into Moses' head. He saw the one in heaven while he was on the mountain with God. So, I'm gonna, let's go back to Exodus. Okay, go back to Exodus 25. God says to Moses, Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. So while Moses was spending that time with God, God showed Moses what? The heavenly tabernacle referred to 1,500 years later in the book of Hebrews. The one Jesus sits at now. The heavenly tabernacle. So what's that tell you already about the one they were going to build out there in the wilderness that had a big tent and all that stuff? It's a shadow. It's a shadow. It's a reflection of the one that's coming in the future. Melchizedek came 500 years before that to Abraham. What's that tell you about Melchizedek? What's that tell you about the high priest? What's that tell you about all of that? About Moses. It's a shadow. It's a reflection of something that's coming. Everything's building up to the one big event, which is Christ. Our high, high priest isn't offering animal sacrifices before God. He was the final sacrifice. Now, I will tell you, this is where it's going to get really, 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 really interesting tonight. Okay? I'll give you a heads up. Jesus is at the heavenly tabernacle right now. Can we all just say, yeah? Right? He's at the heavenly tabernacle, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's our high priest. Is he up there sacrificing animals? No. No. But he's a high priest. Isn't that what a high priest do? They make animal sacrifices. Well, in the old order, that's what they did. Now, I'm going to tell you, when we get to the end tonight, I'm going to show you there's going to be a temporary revitalization of animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. And most people are going to say, why? Because Jesus is the, high, he's the last sacrifice. He's the blood of the lamb, right? So stay with me. I want you to kind of go with me through this. We can honestly say today that in heaven, at the heavenly tabernacle, Jesus the high priest is not doing animal sacrifices. Now let's go to verse 3. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest, Jesus, must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, and by the way, by the time the Hebrew writer writes this, he's not here on earth, he's already gone to the Father. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest. Why? Because he couldn't be a priest on the earth. Why? Because the priests on the earth were from Levite. They were from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. And since there's already our priests who offer gifts uh, required by the law. So Jesus was never really meant to be the earthly high priest. He is the heavenly high priest because there were already earthly high priests, right? Every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices. Did Jesus fulfill that role? So let's go to Ephesians and ask the question, did Jesus fulfill the role of a high priest? 
live a life, Ephesians 5, 2, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us, and he offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. A pleasing aroma. Have you, have you ever thought about a sacrifice as a pleasing aroma? Let, let me put it another way. Do you know God smells? He has the ability to smell. Where do you think you got the ability? Do you think you, you've got something God doesn't have? We're made in his likeness and his image. He can smell things. And, and, and I'm not going to act like I understand it, but when there were animal sacrifices being made in the right way, by the right people, at the right place, at the right time, God says it was a pleasing aroma to him. And in Ephesians, it says that when Jesus sacrificed himself, it was a pleasing aroma to God. It's, Jesus was the sacrifice, and it pleased the one that it was sacrificed to. Animal sacrifices, they are an integral part of the tabernacle worship, right? They are. Do, do you know that the Bible says that there's a day coming, Daniel prophesies in the future, the Jerusalem temple is going to be rebuilt, there's going to be a peace agreement signed, I believe, with the Antichrist. They're going to rebuild the Jerusalem temple, and what will they restart after they rebuild the Jerusalem temple? They will restart animal sacrifices. You know how I know? Because it says that three and a half years into that peace agreement, the Antichrist will shut down the animal sacrifices. He will stop them. And at that point, he proceeds to the temple and announces to the world that he is God. So they're going to restart. They've got to rebuild the temple. The Jews will not do animal sacrifices outside the temple. So if you wonder, why don't they do animal sacrifices right now? They don't have a temple to do it in. When they rebuild the temple, they will restart animal sacrifices. My point is this. Animal sacrifices have been around a long time. They were in the Garden of Eden. God offered the first sacrifice when he killed an animal and he used its skin to cover the shameful nakedness of Adam and Eve. Do you know that? There was an animal sacrifice. Adam didn't do it. Eve didn't do it. God did it, or he had it done. Genesis 3.21, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins and for Adam and his wife. Now, now, how did he get the animal skins? They don't just zip off, right? It's kind of a, a real commitment to give your skin. Abel, let's go from Adam and Eve. What about Abel? They had Cain and Abel. Abel made an animal sacrifice, Right? You often wonder, how did Abel know? Obviously, he knew that God required an animal sacrifice. Abel made an animal sacrifice, and Cain made a grain offering sacrifice, and God said, no, it's not sufficient. It has to be an animal sacrifice. Noah, let's just go down the line. I want to show you that animal sacrifices were apart from the very beginning, in the time of Genesis, to the time of Cain and Abel. Now, here comes Noah off of the boat. What's he do? Genesis 8, 20. After he got off the boat, Noah built an altar to the Lord. And there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. Where did he get the animals and the birds to make the sacrifice? He had put them on the boat specifically for the purpose that when they got off the boat, they would be sacrificed. You, wouldn't, wouldn't you have hated them in those animals? I'm going to be seasick for a year, and then you're going to take me off and burn me up. After all of that, you didn't even survive. Verse 21, and the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice. And he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. Now, the high priest, Aaron, offered animal sacrifices. Notice that the aroma was also pleasing to God. Exodus 29. Next, Aaron and his sons must lay their hands on the head of one of the rams, then slaughter the ram, splatter its blood against all sides of the altar. 
Cut the ram into pieces and wash off the internal organs and the legs. Set them alongside the head and the other pieces of the body. Then burn the entire animal on the altar. This is a burnt offering to whom? Whose idea is this? Moses? This would be really cool to do? No. Is it Aaron's idea? No. Who? This is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a special gift presented to the Lord. Can you see that all these examples are a shadow or a coming of Christ? Now, some of you right now, if you were honest, you would say, nope, not yet. Can you see, can you see that now we've listed uh, Melchizedek, a priesthood, a, a tabernacle, a, the, the, the blood has to be spilled to atone for sin in the tabernacle, all of those things. Are they in and of themselves the main point? No. They're only revealing the main point that's coming. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. They served in a system of worship that is only a copy. What? The priesthood, the tabernacle, the animal sacrifices. They serve in a system of worship that's only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure, Moses, that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. Moses saw the heavenly tabernacle. So when he built the earthly tabernacle, it was patterned after what he saw in the presence of God in heaven. The Apostle Paul reveals this shadow as well. This shadow thing is not just an Old Testament thing. The Apostle Paul says the shadow is still going on in the New Testament. Colossians 2.16 So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or, or, listen, listen, or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Let me give you an example. I'll be sorry I gave you this example, but I'll go ahead being I brought it up. Several years ago, when we went to a Saturday night service for a while, we served communion in a Saturday night service. I had a local minister come and chew me out because we served communion on Saturday at church. He believed that somehow we had violated some sacred spiritual law. I asked him to show me where he came up with that. He could not. But I would give this to him for these rules. What? Don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. Why, for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. So if you want to take communion on Saturday in a pure heart to celebrate Christ, that is the reality of communion. Not the day that you took communion, but the reality is Christ. Christ is the grand finale. He's the reason for all of it. Old Testament, New Testament. Can you imagine? Now, here, here's, here's, the, here's the, the, the middle point. Can you imagine how hard this message would have been for unbelieving Jews? Jews that didn't accept Jesus as Messiah. Because Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. These people had based their entire life on the Mosaic Law. And here comes this new movement which basically says all that stuff that you spent your whole life on is only a shadow of Jesus. He's replacing all of it. They couldn't take it. They couldn't take it. Most of them couldn't handle it. They were, they were mad. That's why they stoned people to death. They couldn't handle it. Hebrews 8, 6. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant 
with God. Now, if you're, if you're a Jew who doesn't believe Jesus is Messiah and somebody tells you this, it's heresy to them. It's heresy. That what? That Jesus? You, you remember what, what the, the Jews, when they threw Paul in jail when he came into Jerusalem? What? They, he talks about our law. He, he talks about our law. We can't, we can't have him talking about our law. Paul, yeah, he did talk about the law, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And they tried to kill him. But it says that he's the one who mediates for us a far better covenant. It's based on far better promises. The priesthood, anybody here want to go back to the old covenant? Anybody? Did y'all bring a lamb in here? A goat? I got to slit its throat. And I got to spill the blood out, and I got to set the thing on fire. Anybody want to go back to the old covenant? I don't think so. The priesthood of Christ is not even from the Levitical line. It's totally new. It's different than the original covenant. It was supposed to be. The one that mediates this new covenant of his own blood is superior in every way. And listen, the promises of the new covenant are way better than the promises of the old covenant. This covenant of Christ doesn't make the original one useless. (coughs) Did you hear me? It doesn't make the original one meaningless or useless. It only reveals the original covenant as a shadow of the main event, not the main event itself. Next verse, verse 7. If the first covenant, what? The Abrahamic covenant that was passed through Moses, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would, not have been, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But it did not accomplish the goal of reconciling man with God. So what did it do? It allowed man to see that you will never make it unless something bigger than this covenant comes. You'll never make it. Verse 7, excuse me. This first covenant was put in place so the presence of God could dwell among the people. I think it's important that we we say, why the tabernacle? Why the animal sacrifice? Why the priesthood? I'm talking about in Moses, in the wilderness, and two million Israelites, and they're just now leaving Egypt. Why? Don't, Don't miss this. God was going to move among the people in the camp. He's going to move in. He had not not moved in with his people since he put the gate up at the Garden of Eden. He had left. And he said to Moses, I'm coming back and I'm going to dwell among you. My glory, my Shekinah glory is going to come dwell in the middle of the camp. So why the law? Why the priesthood? Why the animal sacrifices? It was the only way that God was going to be able to come and live in the middle of the people and the people not die from his holiness. He wanted fellowship. God wanted fellowship, and the covenant and the animal sacrifices made it possible for him to have fellowship, but it was only remotely possible. Why? Because you couldn't see his face. He was behind the curtain, but he was there, right? He was still there. He traveled with them. The new covenant of Christ is not behind the veil. It is not a behind the veil covenant. No, the veil has been torn down. Let's go to verse 8. But when God found fault with the people, he said, now here's where you got to understand something. The Hebrew writer is going to quote the prophet Jeremiah right now. So when God found fault with the people, he said, Jeremiah wrote it down. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. They'd be the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Israel and Judah. A day is coming. It's in the future. Jeremiah prophesied. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. There's a new covenant, right? 
It's coming. Jeremiah announced it. The Hebrew writer quotes it. Has it happened yet? Let's go on. The people, Israel, couldn't keep the law. Their nature was unable to keep the terms of the original covenant. The Hebrew writer is quoting the prophet Jeremiah who lived before the fall of Jerusalem. This is where it gets very interesting tonight. Jeremiah is prophesying about an event, listen, that is still yet to come. It still has not happened. It still has not happened. The offer of the new covenant. What did Jesus do on that night in, in the upper room when he says, this co new covenant of my blood? What was that? that? That's the new covenant. Has Israel, as a nation, received this new covenant? No, they have not. Have some of them? Yes. As a people? No, they have not. But they're going to. But they're going to. The offer of the new covenant has, has come to the church. You and I, whether you want to admit it or not, you live in the time of the Gentiles. It's called the church age. This offer of a new covenant has come to the church, but it has not yet come to the nation of Israel, not as a whole. Look closely at the Jeremiah prophecy and ask yourself, has this been fulfilled yet, or will this be fulfilled after the rapture of the church? Now, now listen, if, if you miss the sequence, you're going to miss what I'm about to say. The Hebrew writer is quoting Jeremiah when he says what? The people couldn't keep the law. God found fault with the people, so he said, a day is coming. He, he he quotes Jeremiah. So let's go to Jeremiah and read the whole thing in its context. And I'll ask you again, has this happened yet? Well, when will this happen? Jeremiah 31, 31. The day is coming. Future tense, right? The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. Well, that matched what's up in Hebrews. You know why? Because the Hebrew writer is quoting Jeremiah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. What day? I believe that day's not here yet. But it's coming quickly, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. Now, what does that contrast to the Old Covenant? The instructions were on the outside. They were not on the inside. Those stone tablets, those 613 Jewish mitzvahs, those rules, thou shalt not and thou shalt, 613 of them, 10 commandments. He put them on the outside. But he says, I will put my instructions on that day, on that day in the future, says the Lord, I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them where? On stone tablets? And have y'all put them in a box? No. I will write them on their hearts. This is a supernatural act of God. I will, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And, they, and, if, you want, and, and if right now you're still saying, I'm not sure that that means that's still future for us, well, stay with me. Verse 34, and they'll not need to teach their neighbors nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you shall know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. Has that happened? Has that happened? That's not happened. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day and the moon and the stars to light the night and who stirs the sea into roaring waves. His, his name is the Lord of heaven's armies, and this is what he says. I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to abolish the laws of nature. And I'm going to push pause for a moment. There's a lot of churches that, that preach replacement theology. That means that the church has replaced Israel. If you want to know what God's will is, look in anything that says Israel in the New Testament, strike it out and write church in. It's not true. It's just not true. God has invited the church to join Israel, not replace Israel. 
He's still got a covenant. He's still got something he's going to do. I am as likely to reject my people, Israel, as I am uh, to abolish the laws of nature. This is what the Lord says. Just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider casting them away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. I'm going to tell you, it's coming. Not yet, it's coming. The day is coming, says the Lord, when all Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt for me. What? Has this happened yet? Anybody think right now, well, this has already happened? No, no, it hasn't. It'll all, all Jerusalem will, will be rebuilt for me from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. A measuring line will be stretched out over the hill of Garib and across to Goa and the entire area, including the graveyard and the ash dump in the valley and all the fields to the Kidron Valley on the east. As far as the horse gate, something's going to happen. It will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be captured. It will never again be destroyed. Has this happened? No, but it's going to. Now go to Zechariah, because he talks about it too. Zechariah 12 says, on that day. These are all, they're all talking about things that are coming. The Lord will defend the people of Jerusalem. The weakest among them will be as mighty as King David. And the royal descendants will be like God, like the angel of the Lord who goes before them. And on that day, I will begin to destroy all the nations who come against Jerusalem. And then I will do something. Here it is. Here it is. This is how I know he's talking about the same event. He's going to do, the laws aren't going to be on the outside. The laws are going to be on the inside because God's going to reach inside the human heart and do something supernatural. On that day, then I will pour out my spirit of grace and prayer on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. And they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who's that? Who did they pierce? That's the Messiah. They will, people in Jerusalem are going to see the Messiah. They will look on me, the one who they have pierced, and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. The sorrow and mourning in Jerusalem on that day will be like the great mourning of Hadim Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. Now back to Hebrews. I want you to compare the Old and the New Testament descriptions. Hebrews 8.10. I've just read to you Jeremiah. I read Zechariah. Now let's go back to Hebrews 8 and see if, they, see if they go together. See if they do this. See if they dovetail. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day. Says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. Something big's going to have to happen for that to happen. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. The new covenant is the revelation of Jesus as Messiah. God will put his laws on the inside, not on the outside. Now, now listen, 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 listen carefully. Has the church been offered the new covenant? Yes. Are you and I, have you and I been offered a heart transplant? Yes. What does that look like? It is when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. He writes his laws, his nature over us our own heart it's not about an external it's about an internal transformation that's why when the holy spirit came the church age the time of the gentiles began but he has announced that there's a time that the time of the gentiles will close and then he's going to finish what he started with israel so the question is, how much longer does the time of the Gentiles have? How much more time is there? 
Why are, why are they weeping in Zechariah 12.10? They will look upon the one who is pierced, and they will weep and wail and mourn, NIV says. Why are they crying? Why aren't they celebrating? Do you know why they're crying? Because at that moment they realize that the Jewish Messiah has been Jesus all along. And the one that they could have had all this time, they just now know him. The church age is our time to enter the new covenant. If you're in the room tonight, I'm going to tell you, we live in the church age. We have accessibility to what he has offered Israel that Israel has not yet taken as a nation. We have access to today. Access to today, what? I will write my laws upon their heart and they will know me. He's offering that now. To be born again of the water and born again of the Spirit is what he's offering Israel. And he's already offered it to us. But there's a problem. That day will one day end. Romans 11. Let me read it to you. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you'll not feel proud about yourselves. Who's he talking to? This is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, talking to a Gentile church in Rome. He's talking to you and me. That's who he's talking to. I don't want you to feel proud about yourselves, you Gentile church people. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts. But this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so, what happens after the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ? That's what I want to know. And so, all Israel will be saved. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem. Who's coming from Jerusalem? And what's the context of him coming from Jerusalem? The church age is closed. And he turns toward Israel. And he comes from Jerusalem. Where do you think Jesus is coming back to? He comes from Jerusalem. And he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is what? My covenant with them. Who's them? Who's them? Israel. This is my covenant with them. I will take away your sins. How? How's he going to do that? He's going to open their eyes to see. They will look upon the one who was pierced and they will weep and wail and mourn and they will see the Messiah. Verse 28, next page. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news. And this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call cannot be withdrawn, can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against God, God was merciful to you instead. Now they, who's they? Israel. Now they are the rebels. And God's mercy has come to you Gentiles so that they too will share in God's mercy. Let's summarize tonight with the first, with the final verse of, of Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 13. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one, the first covenant, listen, obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. What does soon disappear mean? Do you know? If it's obsolete, it's going to soon disappear. There's only one way into this new covenant. God's made a new covenant. Right now, it's offered to the time of the Gentiles. We're in the middle of that. But one day, that time of the Gentiles is going to close, and this new covenant that Israel, as a nation, still has not seen, will see it. I believe, that, I believe they will not see it until the rapture of the church has taken place. But right now, how do you get into this new covenant? Through the high priest. Singular. His name's Jesus. I love this prophecy from Jeremiah about the good old days. Because Israel still talks about the good old days. Let me read it. Jeremiah 3.14. And, and this purpose of this is to connect the dots. 
Return home, you wayward children, says the Lord, for I am your master. I will bring you back to the land of Israel, one from this town, two from that family, from wherever you are scattered. Now push pause for a moment. Can anybody read this today and say, wow, is God faithful? Before 1948, there was no place for them to come home to. But since May 14, 1948, they've been coming home. Now, there are more than 7 million Jews now living inside of Israel. 7 million. What's he say? Return home, you wayward children. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel, one from this town and two from that family, from wherever you were scattered. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will guide you with knowledge and understanding. And when, and when your land is once more filled with people, says the Lord, you will no longer wish for the good old days. What were the good old days to Israel? When you possessed the ark of the Lord's covenant, you had it in Jerusalem. You will not miss those days. What's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen to where they're going to say, ah, oh, we don't even care about the ark of the Lord. You won't even miss those days or even remember those days and you will not need to rebuild the ark. Can somebody tell me what's bigger than that? You know the answer. In that day, here it comes, here it comes. In that day, what's bigger than wanting the ark of the Lord? You know what happened when they had the ark of the Lord? They were undefeated. You couldn't beat them. They'd just go to war with anybody, and nobody could stand against them. But on that day, you won't have to remember the good old days, in that day, Jerusalem will be known as what? Say it out loud. The throne of the Lord. Now, what do you think that means? The Lord will be in Jerusalem. If Jesus is in Jerusalem, you think you're going to want the ark? Yeah, Jesus, I know you're here, but I was really wanting that ark. You see what he's doing? In that day, Jerusalem will be known as the throne of the Lord. And all the nations, by the way, I'm, I'm going to get into this. It's going to blow your mind. And, and, and while Jesus is in Jerusalem, there's nations. There's people on the earth. Are you with me? All the nations will come there to Jerusalem to honor the Lord. Jesus is there. Jews are having their eyes open. They're starting to see his Messiah. They will come to honor the Lord. They will no longer stubbornly follow their own evil, desi evil desires. In those days, the people of Judah and Israel will return together from exile in the north. They will return to the land I gave their ancestors as an inheritance forever, forever. When's this going to take place? It'll take place in the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. The good old days will not compare to the day that Jerusalem is known as the throne of the Lord. The prophet Ezekiel reveals, reveals this future scene with a rebuilt Jerusalem and a reestablished priesthood. Listen. Now, why did they have to reestablish a priesthood now that Jesus is the high priest? Because Jesus was the high priest of the heavenly tabernacle, right? He stands between man and God. There is still something left undone for Israel. This is the description of Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ. Ezekiel 44. Listen carefully. Now, let, let, me, let me do something. I believe there's going to be a rapture of the church. The time of the Gentiles will close. Seven years of tribulation will come upon the earth. During the seven years of tribulation, Israel will come to its end. And it'll look like there'll be no hope, for the Antichrist will try to destroy them. And God will come in and he will rescue them. He will save them. He will open their eyes. And many of Israel will turn to God. I believe some Gentiles will turn to God during the tribulation. And they will enter the millennial in human flesh. Are you with me? They, they're not resurrected bodies. Now, li listen, this is really big. 
at the end, when Jesus comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation, if you are lost, if you are lost, if you have never received Christ, when Jesus comes at the second coming, which means not the rapture of the church, seven years later when he stands on the Mount of Olives, if you are lost at that point, you die. Everybody dies. He comes to kill. He comes to make war. If you're struggling with seeing Jesus, then you still don't understand. When he comes at the end of the tribulation, he comes to kill every unbeliever. They will all die. All of them. But what happens if you became a believer during the seven-year tribulation? And you didn't die. You will enter the millennial reign of Christ in human flesh. Able to have children with somebody who also is in flesh. Y'all giving me that look. Now, I can read this. Because I'm reading to you the millennial reign of Christ. They're going to have a temple that's going to make Herod's temple and Solomon's temple look like child's play. Because God's going to supernaturally build this temple in Jerusalem. And it'll be the millennial temple for a thousand years. It'll be the throne of God in Jerusalem. Ezekiel 44, verse 1. Then the man brought me back to the east gateway in the outer wall of the temple area, but it was closed. And the Lord said to me, this gate must remain closed. It will never again be opened. No one will ever open it or pass and pass through for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered here. Therefore, it must always remain shut. Only the prince himself may sit inside this gateway to, the, to feast in the Lord's presence. But he may come and go only through the entry room of the gateway or the vestibule of the eastern gateway. Then the man brought me through the north gateway to the front of the temple. So you can't go through that east gate, right? Because the Lord went through that east gate. Only the prince, and he has to go through a little door on the side of the east gateway. So he takes me to the north entrance of the temple. Now remember, we're in the millennial reign of Christ. And I looked and I saw the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And I fell face down to the ground. Who's inside? The glory of the Lord's inside. The Jerusalem temple. You couldn't approach it from the east, but you could go around to the north and you could see the glory of the Lord. Let's go to Ezekiel 44, 15. I could read it all, but we'd run out of time. However, so who's managing things at this temple? I, I, I can give you the short version. The Levitical priesthood messed up. So, they're not going to get to be the high priest during this thousand-year temple in Jerusalem thing. There was a family of Zadok that didn't blow it. And they're, they're Levites, but only the family of Zadok are going to be able to fulfill this role in this priesthood during this thousand-year reign of Christ. Verse 15, however, the Levitical priest of the family of Zadok continued to minister faithfully in the temple when Israel abandoned me for idols. These men, in the millennial reign of Christ, these men will serve as my ministers. They will stand in my presence and offer the fat and blood of the sacrifices, said the sovereign Lord. They're going to redo animal sacrifices in Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ. And the priests from the family of Zadok are going to be the ones who do it. And some of you might say, well, I don't care. I don't really care. I am so confused right now, I don't even care. Because yeah, I'm, I'm looking at your faces. They alone may enter my sanctuary and approach my table to serve me. They will fulfill all of my requirements. What I just read to you is not heaven. It's not heaven. It's earth. This is Jerusalem during the millennial reign of Christ. This brings up one very large question. Why would there be animal sacrifices after Jesus returns? Didn't the blood of Jesus forgive all the sins once and for all time? Yes, yes. Let, let me be clear. 
Yes, the blood of Jesus forgave sin once and for all time. But the Bible never said animal sacrifices forgave sin. Are you with me? Did anybody? The Bible never said animal sacrifices forgave sin. In fact, the Bible says this. Hebrews 10, verse 4, says what? It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why... When Christ came into the world, he said to his Father, to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me instead a body to offer. So why are there animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom? It's not over. This is not heaven. It's not over. There are people in human flesh having children during the millennial reign of Christ. Stay with me. What about the people born on the earth during the 1,000 years of Christ? How will animal sacrifices apply to them? Most premillennial scholars agree that the purpose of animal sacrifices during the millennial kingdom is memorial in nature. As the Lord's Supper is a reminder of the death of Christ to the church today, animal sacrifices will be a reminder during the millennial kingdom. To those born during the millennial kingdom, animal sacrifices will again be an object lesson. During that future time, righteousness and holiness will prevail. But those with earthly bodies, listen, there's going to be people who have eternal flesh and there's going to be people who have mortal flesh at the same time on the earth during the thousand-year reign of Christ. But those who have earthly bodies will still have a sin nature. Do you know that? Those who are still in the flesh will have a sin nature, and they will be, and there will be a need to teach about how offensive sin is to a holy and righteous God. Animal sacrifices will serve that purpose. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder. Sin, year by year, there is a reminder. Hebrews 10.3, this is based on the law. But instead, those animal sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Did animal sacrifices bring forgiveness of sin? No. You know what they did? They reminded me that my sin was still here. Every year was the Day of Atonement. But you know what you knew? You knew that after they did the Day of Atonement, next year he had to do it again. And my sin was only pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. It's not gone. It's not gone. Do you remember what happens at the end of the thousand-year reigns of Jesus? Anybody remember? So there's going to be a thousand years on the earth, and there's going to be people who survived the tribulation and they weren't lost. They were saved. They survived the tribulation, but they never died. And because they never died, they never got the resurrection. And they missed the rapture. Are you with me? They missed the rapture, which gave you new flesh. They didn't get the resurrection, which gives you the new flesh. You didn't die in the tribulation, which gives you new flesh. You're still alive when Jesus comes to Jerusalem. So you're going to enter the millennial kingdom in mortal flesh. And they're going to be other people. They're going to have children. And they're going to multiply and the population of the earth will greatly increase. Read the Bible. It says it will greatly increase. And what happens at the end of the thousand years? Where's Satan while all this is going on? He's in jail. Where's Jesus? In Jerusalem. Where's Satan? In jail. He's locked in the abyss. And what happens at the end of the thousand years? They let him out. They let him out. Well, who cares they let him out? You know why they're going to let him out? Because he will do exactly what he did before. He will raise a rebellion against God. With whom? Who in the world can he get to follow him? The people in mortal flesh. Just like now. The people in mortal flesh. Remember, many people have been born during the thousand years of Jesus reigning in Jerusalem. And yes, there will be people reigning with Jesus. Listen, listen. I don't want you to leave here tonight with the idea that there's all these people in mortal flesh when Jesus is reigning in Jerusalem. Yes, there are. 
but there will also be people in eternal, immortal flesh reigning, reigning with authority with him on this earth during that thousand years. I plan to be one of those. You hear me? I plan to be one of those people. I plan to be one of those people. Last one. Revelation 20. This is what happens at the end. When the thousand years comes to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive whom? Whom? The nations. Who are they? Who are the nations? They are the people who survived the tribulation and they had children who had children who had children who had children. And they are in mortal flesh. They are subject to death. They are the nations. Who did you think would be, if we reign with him for a thousand years on this earth, who are we reigning over? The nations. He will go out, Satan will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle. Who? Satan's going to gather the nations for battle. Why? A mighty army. Why? As numberless as sand along the seashore. I told you they were going to have children who were going to have children who were going to have children who were going to have children. As you can't count them. There's going to be so many. They're going to, their life expectancy during the thousand-year reign is as old as trees. I suppose you can... Even those in flesh. Even those in flesh. Are you with me? Even those in flesh will have life expectancies like before the flood. Methuselah lived, what, 970-something years old? How old can you have children? I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to know. But they're having children. Right? Look at the number of people. A mighty army, as numberless as sands of the seashore. And I saw them as they went up to the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded God's people and the beloved city. They're coming to Jerusalem to make war. Satan's been in prison for a thousand years, and he's let go, and he comes out in all these mortal flesh, and all these mortal flesh still have the sin nature. They still got the sin nature, so he deceives them. But fire from heaven, they've come to the beloved city, but fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. And then the devil who had deceived them, who's them? Those in flesh. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We have a high priest. Well, it, all that Old Testament and all that priesthood and Melchizedek and animal sacrifices and all, it's a shadow of something that's coming. Coming. And if you miss it, and if you miss it, you will face hell. You will face hell if you miss it. It's not funny. But I'm going to tell you the good side. Here's the good side. We have a new covenant sealed with the blood of Christ. And by faith, every one of you and I can take hold of this new covenant. And we are the children of God. And no matter what happens, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, I am redeemed. I'm going to get a new body. And no matter what happens, either through the rapture or they put me in a box and put that box in the ground, no matter what happens, when that trumpet goes off, I'm out of there. I'm out of there. I'm going to get a new body, I'm going to rise, I'm going to meet the Lord in the air, and I'm going to be with Him forevermore, and I'm going to go with Him, and I'm going to escape these coming horrors and dwell with the Son of God. The tribulation, I'm going to miss the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, He's going to come on a white horse, and all of His are going to come back with Him to this earth, and we're going to reign with Him for a thousand years. Why? Because it says so. Because it says so. And we're going to reign with him for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, listen, at the end of the thousand years, did y'all take the Revelation class? And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride, 
beautifully dressed for her husband. And something happens that hasn't happened on this earth. I didn't even see it until about two years ago. And it says God himself and the Son both will have their thrones on the new earth. The Father and the Son, both. And we'll be with them. Both of them here. Not just Jesus the Son, but the Father. Both of them here. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this marvelous hope. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for this high priest. Thank you, Lord. We know what's coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.